unless it is from the Bible, I don't really like to preach from, or I never really do preach about historical events. We don't take our time in here and go to Time Magazine or does that still even exist? I don't know. But I mean, you don't go to whatever website is popular and preach on events of the day or even history. But since it is indeed the time when we celebrate that holiday known as Thanksgiving, I hope that you will allow me to begin this Lord's Day by reminding you of just a few things of history regarding this event, the first Thanksgiving and the Pilgrims. Just, I'm just going to mention two things that are actually hopeful, I hope will be unto edification for us. Number one, the Pilgrims who came to America in 1620 originated in England and they were born-again Christians. They were known as separatists. They were similar to the Puritans. They wanted a more pure theological church than the Church of England. They wanted a more pure worship than the traditional, nothing but tradition type of worship held by the Church of England. As you may know, the Church of England was very similar to Roman Catholicism. Today, over here, it is similar to the Episcopalian Church. It's very formal type worship, reading from prayer books, bowing, kneeling, standing, similar to Roman Catholicism. And these separatists did not want to do that. They wanted pure worship, simple worship, much like the early church. They wanted pure theology, right theology, not theology based upon tradition and all of the false teachings held by the Church of Rome or the Church of England. So, their theology and their desires were a lot like our own, to be simple and to be accurate to the Word of God. The difference is, the Church of England would not allow that. They didn't let other churches grow up around their church. You had to conform to our church. That's what the Church of England would say. So, the uh, separatists were in danger of being killed, massacred, or run off by the Church of England. So they escaped by originally going to the Dutch Netherlands. They escaped from England to the Netherlands to seek to be able to worship in a way that they desired. Now, that didn't last long because there was danger there. So uh, then they left the Dutch Netherlands for America in 1620. They, as you know, went uh, set out on the Mayflower, and there were 102 original separatists who left England, or left Holland, and then came to America on the Mayflower, on that journey. They intended to land by the Hudson River, but uh, the winds did not work out right, but they arrived in New England on 11-11-1620, but did not actually wind up disembarking until 12-16-1620 at Plymouth, and there settled the Plymouth Colony. 
So what I want for us to take from this is, here we're biblical-based, sound theological Christians who came to America in order to worship God in a way that was biblical, in a way that was right, and not in the false ways given by the Church of England or any other church for that matter. Number one, they were biblical. They were Christians. Number two, the pilgrims had a very difficult time after they landed in America. It was a hard winter. It was a difficult time for provisions and they weren't able to build shelters as quickly as they had hoped. They actually continued to live on the Mayflower while coming out into the land and trying to cultivate it. But it was winter time. So many of them died. In fact, it was a stretch where two or three a day died. So from the original 102 who left for the new world, only 52 survived the first winter. However, following that, in the springtime, they started to plant crops. They started to build the shelters. And they started to do the things that they had come to do. And God blessed these Christians these 52 Christians that remained became prosperous and had a great bountiful harvest. For their first harvest, God just richly blessed them and they had an abundance of crops. So what did they do? Very biblical. In keeping with the Old Testament traditions, they had a feast celebrating the harvest. And this feast was enormous, apparently, because God had blessed them greatly. And despite what revisionist history teaches, that it was the Indians that somehow saved the pilgrims, the Indians gave them food. No, God blessed them, and they had so much that they invited the Indians to come and join them in their feast. Why would they do that? Because as Christians who understood what it meant to be saved and forgiven by God, they evidenced that salvation. They evidenced that forgiveness with brotherly love and invited even the Indians to come and share in their bounty. Yes, I'm sure the Indians brought some food too, like we would today, but it is not the Indians who saved the pilgrims. It was God who saved and blessed the pilgrims. And the pilgrims practiced biblical Christianity as evidence of their faith. They also practiced biblical Christianity and evidence of their faith in giving thanks. 
That's where we're going to go today in our continued study on the fundamentals of forgiveness. Now, we've already seen, by way of review, the essence of forgiveness, that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness. And then we saw the existence of forgiveness, that God is willing to save, that God is willing to forgive, and that Christ gave his life, that men could be forgiven. And now we are considering the evidence of forgiveness. And the number one evidence that we focused on for several weeks was heartfelt love to God. Anyone who is genuinely saved will have love to the God who saved them. And we looked at several instances or several examples from the scriptures and we saw that. And then we saw also from the scriptures what Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There will be evidence of that love. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Any man, any woman who is genuinely saved will keep the commandments of Christ. There will be evidence in their life that they are saved. And one of the commandments that they will keep is where we left off last week. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that if you love me, you will love one another. This is what our Lord said in the Gospel of Matthew as we focused on last week in verse 34. Those who love Jesus will love one another. Now we had already seen from the scriptures or we, man, we mentioned that Jesus had already taught in the scriptures, taught the disciples, taught the people that there would be love for your neighbor. That that's, that's just basic foundational loving of God, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. But this is a new commandment and it's loving one another. And so we mentioned that it is that family love, that familial love. The love of the church for one another. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we will act like it. One who does not have that kind of love, according to 1 John chapter 2, does not have the light. The light of Christ is not in him. If you don't love your brother, you are not born again. So, forgiven men and forgiven women will be and will act as brothers and sisters. We want to have sound theology. We want to have biblical worship. But we must also have love one for another. Now, we want to look at several other evidences of forgiveness. And today, which one do you think I should bring? Well, how about the evidence of thanksgiving that when a man or a woman is genuinely saved, they will give thanks to God. They will give thanks to God for their salvation. I'm going to touch on a couple of passages in the Old Testament and then a couple in the New Testament. I'm going to, as one suggested, go really fast. We're just going to touch on a few of these passages, comment on them, and you're going to see that the whole matter of giving thanks to God is just everywhere in the scriptures. So I have to practice the discipline of exclusion and try to get it all in today. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. If you get into those uh, Samuel King's Chronicles, that's the way it goes. Reverse alphabetical order. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 
First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, chapter 13. And what I want to see from the Old Testament passages is that this is what the godly Israelite would do. The godly Israelite, the one who loved God, would give thanks to God. Now, if you're looking here at chapter 13 of First Chronicles, the first thing I want you to understand is what we're seeing is the attempt of David to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And in chapter 13, and again, I really can't go through all of it, please look down to verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the Ark because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, or Yuzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became very angry of the Lord's uh, outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of God. So here's the picture. David's going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. They're getting ready to bring it back. The cart on which it was resting rocked, perhaps in the mud. Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark, and God struck him dead because he wasn't supposed to touch the ark. I promise I'm going to preach on this text one day, but that's not today. What happens next is, in verse 14, the ark remained there in the family of Obed-Edom in that house for three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. So chapter 15, then, David tries again. He tries again to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And what we have then in verses 1 and 2 is that David built a house for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, which is the way it was supposed to be. They figured it out. So now they're going to do what they're supposed to do. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to be ministers to him forever. So he tries again to bring the ark into the city of David, into Jerusalem. Now you go down to verse 25 of chapter 15. So it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went up to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And indeed, they were successful this time as David prayed before the ark and they sacrificed before the ark. Chapter 16 now, verse 1, and they brought the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. So here it is. They brought the ark in. Now what was the ark? What was the ark of God? Well, if you recall, when the tabernacle was built, the ark of the covenant went into that place known as the Holy 
of holies that the priest went into only once a year to offer special sacrifices because the ark with those cherubim on top, that was where God was pictured to dwell. So the ark represented the presence of God. And so it was only in that holy of holy places that the presence of God was at least pictured in the minds of the godly Israelite. Now, of course, we know that God does not dwell in houses made with hands, that God is infinite. He is everywhere. But the picture was that this is where our God dwells in the midst of his people there. That's what the ark represented. And so when the ark was brought in, what was the response of the people as they pictured this as the very presence of their God? Look what we find in verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him praise. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glorify his holy name. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. But the very first thing is a command. Give Thanks to the Lord. Give thanks. So in the midst of the praise, which incidentally we will get to in the evidence of salvation, the evidence of forgiveness is you will give praise and worship God. But here, even before that, give thanks. When you understand God is in your midst, there will be thankfulness from your heart, praise from your heart. Here is the godly Israelite. And if you look again in verse 9, singing praises, singing praises to him, speaking of his wonders, glorying in his name. And before all of that, he's giving thanks. What a response. Thankfulness to God. Glory in God, in the midst of His presence, the people of God were to sing praises to Him. Can you picture this? You have to understand what it meant. And I know that I talked about this a few weeks ago. You have to understand that for the godly Israelites, here's God. This is our God. He is the true God, the eternal God. The Creator God. He means everything to us. And so He's in our midst. He's near. And we thank Him for all that He has done. They would thank Him for the way that God delivered them from the Egyptians. Thank God for the way that He provided for them in the wilderness. Cared for them. Guided them. Defeated their enemies. Provided for them. All of these things they would give thanks to God for and especially as he was in their midst in this tent, this tabernacle that David had provided for the ark to rest. 
I couldn't help. Like I said, I had to be kind of uh, careful in what texts that I took because there are a lot of them. But I couldn't help but take this text because of I'm thinking in terms of what it is supposed to be like even in our church when we worship. Every year for the past number of years, well, it was seven years in a row, we looked at the book of Revelation and we talked about from Revelation chapter 1, how God is in the midst of his church. God is among his people in the church. You read that picture in Revelation of God in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church. And so what are we doing here? Why are we gathered? Why do we meet on a Sunday morning? You ask enough people and you'll get as many different answers as you have people in most cases. But the reason that the church gathers is to worship God. To worship God. God is in our midst. We are to worship Him. And part of that, in fact, the very first thing that David mentions is giving thanks. Giving thanks to Him. When the church gathers with God in our midst, we must be thankful to Him. And we have so much more light than even David did at this time. We have so much more revelation, the full revelation of Christ, the Messiah, and what He has done as He has come and dwelled among men and given His life upon the cross to save us from our sins. How much thanks we should have for this God in doing what He has done for us. Thank you, God. He's in our midst. We gather to worship Him. There must be thanks. We'll get to the praise part, I promise. The worship, but thanks. Look at another, just one more text in the Old Testament. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Daniel read a complete psalm a little while ago. I read from Psalm 54. Now look at Psalm 50. There's praise and thanks to God all throughout the Scriptures. But just for a few moments, look at verse 14 in Psalm 50 as we see some similar language here in terms of what a godly Israelite would do, and I don't have any qualms about saying it's what a godly Christian will do as evidence that he is forgiven. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What is that? A sacrifice costs something. We give ourselves to God. Paul writes in the book of Romans that we are to offer our very lives as a sacrifice to God. And here it speaks of a sacrifice of thanksgiving offered to God. People, God has given us everything. 
everything one of the men even prayed in our worship this morning. It's, it's, he's given us the material things. He's blessed us with our homes, our, our cars. The greatest blessing in material uh, understanding that we have is our families. How blessed we are to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. How blessed we are of God. How can you not offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him for all that He has given? But beyond that, we have our salvation in Christ. Do you realize how unusual you are? How blessed you are? How odd you are? Peculiar. You are a peculiar people. There's not a whole lot of you around. I mean, you think of the cars going by and the people who are more at Walmart beginning their Christmas shopping today or at the malls and that sort of thing. And where are you? At church, worshiping God. Why? Because God, in His providence, in His kindness, in His mercy, has shown grace to you and saved you. All the rest will spend eternity in hell. All the rest will be separated with God for all eternity. But you have been saved by the grace of God. The sacrifice of Jesus has been applied to your life. Your sins are covered. And this is the whole study that we have been seeing. That when your sins are covered and when Christ has redeemed you, that word redemption is a picture of being set free from the bondage of your sins. Forgiven! And when you are forgiven, how could you not possibly thank God for that? So even in the Old Testament, we have this language of offering to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving. One would be hard-pressed to read through the Psalms and through much of the Old Testament and not find passages dealing with thanksgiving to God. Think about all that He did for that nation and most of the godly Israelites were thankful to God for what He had done. Now, let's turn to the New Testament and find even more reasons to give thanks, although I have already been mentioning them. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, while you are turning to Romans chapter 5, I'm just going to mention to you what we have already seen in the two instances that we looked at from the Gospel of Luke. You remember that in the Luke chapter 7, we spent two weeks at least dealing with the matter of that woman that came and knelt at the feet of Jesus as Jesus was reclining at table. She came up behind Jesus and she anointed his feet with perfume. She wept with her tears on his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet. And we said that that was showing love and adoration to Jesus. And indeed it was. However, you can't imagine that that was not mingled with thanksgiving. 
She was showing love to our Lord, but she was also undoubtedly and contained within that act, thanking Him for her her sins being forgiven. And you remember Jesus said to Simon, the Pharisee that had invited, the one who has been forgiven much will love much, but she also thanked much. And again, in contrast, Simon didn't thank Jesus. He didn't show appreciation, he didn't show love, and he didn't show thanks. The evidence of forgiveness is thankfulness to Jesus. Likewise, we looked at Luke chapter 17 and saw those ten lepers. All ten were healed, but only one came back. And he too fell at the feet of Jesus and praised God. What is that? Thanked him for the fact that he was healed. Thanked him. Yes, it was an act of love, as we said, but it was also an act of thanksgiving. Those are the evidences that we saw. But now let's look at some of the teaching to the church in the New Testament as we are here in the book of Romans chapter 5. And I have, uh, I have too many verses to turn to, but we'll, we'll try to get them, all right? Here's Romans chapter 5. And I want us to see, first of all, the thanks of the redeemed in Christ. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his Life. So he's talking about the whole matter of reconciliation. What did I say reconciliation, redemption is? Reconciliation is being brought back to a proper relationship to God the Father. And it comes as you are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. While we were sinners, Christ died for us to cover our sins with his blood. We are redeemed. We're set free from the bondage of sin. So then we turn over into chapter 6 and we find the response to this in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from your sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Here's the evidence of forgiveness. You're freed from your sins. Thanks be to God. How could you not thank God for sending His Son and His Son shedding His blood on the cross as a ransom, as that ransom price paid for your redemption. Christ died for you. How could you not thank him for that? 
And the evidence then is that you will give thanks and that you will turn from being slaves to sin to being slaves of righteousness. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will become a holy people, a sanctified people. And so the believer will cry out from his heart, Thank you, Father! I am unworthy! Just a sinner! And yet Christ died for me! Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Is that your heart today? That's the heart of a true saved man, a true forgiven woman, a true forgiven boy or girl. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to pay my sin debt that I would be forgiven. Amen? Look over in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As we see the contrast of the redeemed in Christ. We saw the thanks of the redeemed in Christ. Here's the contrast of the redeemed in Christ. Look to verse 3 and we see the, uh, the Apostle Paul speaking of those who are not saved, not forgiven. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather, in other words, in contrast to those things, what does he say? Giving thanks. So in contrast to the sinful life, the wicked life, we are to be those who are giving thanks. To be seen not as coarse jesters, not as those who are fooling around and dabbling in immorality, but rather people should see us as those who give thanks. That's why Thanksgiving is a Christian holiday. Don't let the ACLU find out. They'll make us stop. Now, there's a, as I said, even in the bulletin, there's a bunch of people who celebrate Thanksgiving. Who are they thanking? Publix? Walmart? Who are they thanking? It is Christians who understand and know what God has done for them and that God has provided everything for them. So in contrast to the rest of the world, we are to be seen not as those giving thanks to Walmart, but as those who unashamedly give thanks to God. Thanks to God for all that He has done. I had the occasion yesterday, uh, we were invited to a retirement party at a local restaurant. And it just struck me how most people in the world, and again, you've got to see yourself in contrast because this is the forgiven in contrast to the lost. Most of the world never stops to so much as pray and thank God for their meal. There was no prayer, no thanks, none whatsoever except between my wife and I. 
we paused and unashamedly bowed and gave thanks for the meal. Don't ever be afraid to do that. It's a testimony. It's a testimony of your heart. It's a testimony of the forgiveness of God in your life. But how rare it is, how unusual it is for someone to give thanks to God. And that is what we are to do. Look still in this uh, chapter to verse 17. Again, a contrast. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Once again, in contrast to the rest of the world, we're those who are always giving thanks. What do you have? What do you get? What do you own for which you do not or would not give thanks? Everything is from God. All that we have is from God. Our homes, our cars, boats, it's all from God. God is the one who has blessed us with everything we have. And He is the one who has blessed us with our food, our provision. And so day by day we thank Him. As one said, it's not just on Thanksgiving that we give thanks. We give thanks all year long. This is the contrast between you and the world. We give thanks. Very quickly, look over a few pages to Philippians chapter 4. As we now see, the teaching to the redeemed in Christ. The teaching Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Include within your prayers thanksgiving. But before that he says don't be anxious. You know, we have a lot of things that we could be anxious about. We have hardships, persecutions. People are going through difficult times in their lives. But when we get on our knees to God, we focus upon the fact that He has saved us by His grace. That we are bound for heaven. We're dwelling in Beulah land. And we give thanks. No matter how hard the world may be, how difficult things may be, when you get on your knees between you and God, you do so with thanksgiving. We would even say that we would embrace and thank God for the trials. Do you remember the apostles in the book of Acts? They counted it all joy and a privilege even to be beaten for the cause of Christ. We embrace even our own trials and thank God, as James says, because through the endurance of these trials, you grow, you learn. 
You're strengthened in your faith. In all things, we give thanks. Moving along, turn the page to Colossians chapter 3. As we now see the teaching of redemption to the redeemed in Christ. Colossians chapter 3. And look down, if you would, please, to verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Talking about forgiveness now. What does he say? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's love of the brethren. Unity. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of my commandments is, let us love one another. Verse 15 then. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. All of these things are what we are as Christians. All of these things are what we do as a Christian family. Love for one another, unity of the body, genuine believers who have been forgiven, expressing these things, and part and parcel of that. Be thankful. Be thankful. Must move quickly over to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Here we have what I would call the sacrifice of the redeemed in Christ. Similar to what we saw back in Psalm 50. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. As the Apostle, likely the Apostle Paul says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. So similarly, from the psalmist we have the Apostle Paul speaking of the sacrifice to God, which includes thanksgiving. And we're going to conclude in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. As we see what the saints will be doing. The life of the redeemed in Christ. Here's what we will be doing throughout eternity. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, glory and honor and thanks, we will be giving and singing praises to Him. Chapter 7, verse 12. I'll back up to verse 11. And all the angels... We're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
What a picture! People, this isn't just a book. These aren't just words that we read and kind of pass on. This is where we're going. This is what we will see. This is what it will be like. For eternity in the very presence of God, glorifying Him, praising Him, thanking Him. Don't you think you'll be thanking Him that you're in heaven rather than the alternative? Because you will see the lost, judged, condemned, consigned to hell, and cast into the lake of fire. You will see it. And so for all eternity, you will thank God that you didn't go there. You will thank God that you are with Him in heaven. Amen? We have a lot to be thankful for. The church, the redeemed, the forgiven of Christ are those who will give thanks to God. It is an evidence that you are forgiven by Him. No wonder the pilgrims celebrated. They were saved. They loved God. They were blessed by God. And in response, they thanked God. They had a feast like the Old Testament was taught. The Israelites were taught to have that feast to celebrate the harvest. That's what they did. And they did it because they were the redeemed. Of all the people in the world, we are those who should rightly give thanks to God. And we do. Amen? Let's pray.